Our scripture for this morning comes from Acts 13, and I invite you to stand as we hear God's word come among us. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people urged them to speak about these things again the next Sabbath. When the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them and encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And blaspheming, they contradicted what was spoken by Paul. Then both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, since you rejected and judge yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life. We're now turning to the Gentiles. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today is the third and final week in our Encouraged Sermon Series. The first week we looked at how sharing our time and our possessions is one way for us to encourage others. And then the next week we looked at how essential relationships are in helping us to connect with Christ And experience the abundant life Christ has for us. We need each other. Relationship is essential to discipleship. I hope that each one of you has at least one person in your life who has helped connect you with God. And with your deepest purpose. And I hope, if nothing else, this series has encouraged you that you have the same, the opportunity to offer that to someone else. To be a relational encourager for someone else. When I was in high school and college, I had a friend who devoted significant time and resources to mentoring me and encouraging me on my own journey with Christ. And one day I looked at her and I said, how could I ever repay what you have offered to me in our relationship. And she said, my expectation is that you will pass it on. We all have the opportunity to pass on encouragement. Our final look at encouragement is through the lens of courageous witness. How we can encourage others by living out the gospel, especially when times are tough. Now, if you're like me, you might get a little squirmy when you hear the word witness. I grew up in Athens, Georgia, where thousands of people descend on the city 
for six or eight holy days a year called UGA football. And usually on those Saturdays, you would see lots of people witnessing on the corners, if you know what I mean. You'd see plenty of signs written in red and black ink that were reminding me of which section I was going to be in when I died, the smoking or non-smoking section, right? So we may all have a little bit of baggage around this word witness. Let's unpack that together today. In my previous church, we had a team of ushers who helped with safety and security things, and they helped take the offering from the lobby of the church to the safe. And they stood in the church lobby, the whole church service. And I wonder if the ushers actually got to design the doors that went from the sanctuary into the lobby, because they had this top half cut out of the door where there was a window and you could see the ushers the whole service they always sort of reminded me of the secret service because they had dark suits and dark ties and they always had their walkie-talkies we didn't need clocks in the sanctuary because we had the ushers in the back so the closer it got to noon the closer they moved to these windows in the doors that went into the lobby until their faces were almost pressed up against the glass. And we could see them emphatically checking their watches and sort of staring us down. And honestly, I don't blame them. Because when church is over on Sunday morning, it's time to go. The Coe family is laser focused on making it to the car with as few meltdowns as possible. We have lunchtime and nap time on our minds after church. And the best Sundays are the ones when mommy and daddy both get to take a nap, too. Now, usually when people want to provide feedback about a sermon, they might say a brief word at the door when they're leaving the church. They might send an email the next day. They might request to sit down and meet over coffee to talk about the sermon? Did you notice that that is not what happened in our passage today? Paul and Barnabas have gone in. They have been invited to speak. Brothers, do you have a word for us? They stood up and they shared the gospel in worship. And the church attendees respond by pushing their way through the crowd to get to Barnabas and Paul after the service. They follow them down the synagogue steps, into the street, and maybe even all the way into the house of the person who had invited Paul and Barnabas over for a meal after the service. This sort of urgency and energy and spirit-driven momentum is one of the defining features of the book of Acts. Today's text raises some really interesting questions. You know, we can read Acts and we can understand that Barnabas and Paul and the early Christians offered courageous witness. It's rather simple to read what they did, but what's harder for me is to understand why they did it. Why? 
Were Barnabas and Paul willing to so dramatically change their theology, their practice of religion, sell their possessions, cross all kinds of cultural boundaries, and spend their lives traveling? I'm not really sure about you, but that's not exactly my retirement plan. But the Spirit moved them to do this. It's interesting because I don't think skepticism is a new thing. I don't think being theologically or religiously complacent is something that's limited to the modern era. So what is it about the gospel, about this witness, that compelled these early church leaders to get up and go? And then we have all these people who came to Christ. First Jews and then Gentiles who heard the gospel and they were filled with curiosity. They were drawn to this message. They were willing to follow Paul and Barnabas down the synagogue steps and maybe even miss their lunch reservations in order to learn more about Jesus. All through the book of Acts, we see people who are swept up in this Holy Spirit moment. They're willing to be interrupted. They're willing to have risky conversations. They're willing to come together and fellowship with people that up to that point they had considered wholly other. They're willing to follow Jesus' way even when it meant going up against the religious and political establishments, which were two of the most powerful institutions of their time. They're willing to risk and make sacrifice so that they can witness to the gospel. Why? What is it about courageous witness that stirred these people to action? What courageous witness can we offer in 2020? As I sat prayerfully with Acts 13, thinking about the courageous witness that was offered by Barnabas and Paul, and what courageous witness God might invite us into, I was struck by what we share in common with the people of the early church. Not to say that there isn't a significant cultural distance between our time and theirs. But I see no difference between what they were called to do and how they were called to do it and what we are called to do and how we are called to do it. I believe what made the gospel so compelling then and now is that at its heart the gospel is a message of reconciliation. The courageous work that we are invited to be a part of is God's work of reconciliation. And the courageous way that we are invited to participate in God's work is through love. Reconciliation through love. In the beginning, all that God created was good. The Hebrew tells us that it was forcefully good. 
God created a universe that was bound in forcefully good relationship. Relationship between God and humans, humans and animals, animals and the earth, earth and humans, relationship between men and women and adults and children, relationship between every chemical and biological system we can think of, even relationship between us and ourselves. And by Genesis chapter 3, every forcefully good relationship has been broken. Relationship between God and people, between people and the land, between and within families, relationships with ourselves. So the gospel is the good news that God not only does not give up on broken relationships, but that God cannot give up on broken relationships. The nature of God is relationship. The force exacted in the universe by God is the interdependence of all things in whole and thriving relationship. And we have a word for that. It's a Hebrew word called shalom. So the witness that we are invited to offer is the story of God's reconciling work in the world. That in Christ, God is reconciling all things. Every relationship, every person, every system. God is bringing all of it into shalom. This was the witness of the early church in Jerusalem, in Antioch, and then into all the world that in Christ, God had brought down the ethnic, religious, economic, political dividing walls of the first century world and had birthed a new beloved community, a community of people who were living in justice and equity, mercy and forgiveness. And this is our witness too. To share the good news in Jefferson City, in the United States of America, and in all the world, that in Christ, God repairs every broken relationship in our families, our friendships, in our bodies, in the earth and environment, in education, politics, our economy, among races and ethnicities, every system and dividing wall that we can fathom, God is reconciling them all. Imagine how this speaks to the pain and anxiety of our time. And imagine how a small group of folks in Jefferson City, Missouri, who are serving for the purpose of reconciliation, who are growing in the direction of reconciliation, who are welcoming in a spirit of reconciliation, building relationships, networks of reconciling community might make a difference in 2020 and beyond. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of work that I want to be a part of. Our witness of God's reconciling work is courageous because it is done in love. When Sandra Allen, who's a, a member of this church, and I traveled to Romania in November to lead a retreat for Roma women in the city of Bucharest, we got there and we handed a packet of things to be copied for the women coming to our retreat. And in that packet of things, we handed them a schedule. And they looked at the schedule and they looked at us and they sort of laughed. 
And they were like, oh, that's very American of you to have a schedule. Because in Romania, we show up and we let things unfold. We're used to schedules and plans and budgets. We live in a cultural context that is accustomed to controlling outcomes. Reconciliation through love means that we give up control. It means that we give up power in our power-drunk world. It means that we give up our will and our way so that we can follow God's will and God's way. Because love does not insist on its own way. Remember, Jesus didn't show up and say, all right, I'm going to make all this happen by force. Reconciliation is not an event or an achievement. It's a gift and a journey that we receive from God. We show up and we let things unfold in God's way and in God's time. We do not resort to the ways of the world or the ways of evil. Love is evidenced when we trust God for the work of reconciliation because love always hopes and love believes all things. Reconciliation through love looks like loving our enemies, loving our neighbors, and treating people the way that we want to be treated. In one of his brilliant sermons on loving our enemies, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told his congregation at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time when you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. And that is the time you must not do it. Reconciliation through love looks like returning hate, incendiary Facebook posts, snide remarks, and backstabbing, not with more hate, but with love. Because reconciliation through love interrupts the cycle of hatred with the power of love. Our courageous witness in 2020 is reconciliation through love. We are a community devoted not to quick fixes and public admiration, but to the long-suffering work of mending relationships and systems one conversation at a time, one letter at a time, one kind gesture at a time, one stranger at a time, one act of generosity at a time. And this is a message and a witness that overcomes skepticism, and it changes us from the inside out. It is the message that the world is longing for and groaning for. What I admire most about Barnabas, who we've heard about a little bit these last three weeks, is that he was a bridge builder. He built a bridge to the future for the church by selling his land and giving away his assets. He built a bridge between the people of the Jerusalem church and Paul shortly after Paul was converted. And he came to that church and the people thought he was a terrorist. And Barnabas stood up and said, I'll vouch for Paul. Barnabas built a relational bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it is difficult for us to understand the dividing wall that existed. But he built a bridge. 
And 2,000 years later, Barnabas is still building bridges. He is building the bridge, leading us once more into the courageous witness of reconciliation through love.